Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Four, Josie. <laughs> 24. My dear Wormwood, I have been in correspondence with Slub Trimpet, who is in charge of your patient's young woman, and begin to see the chink in her armor. It is an unobtrusive little vice which she shares with nearly all women who have grown up in an intelligence circle united by a clearly defined belief. And it consists in a quite untroubled assumption that the outsiders who do not share this belief are really too stupid and ridiculous. Outsiders do not feel the same way. Their confidence, if they are confident, is of a different kind. Hers, which she supposes to be due to faith, is in reality largely due to the mere color she has taken from her surroundings. It is not, in fact, very different from the conviction she would have felt at the age of ten that the kind of fish knives used in her father's house were the proper or normal or real kind, while those of the neighboring families were not real fish knives at all. Now, the element of ignorance and naivete in all this is so large and the element of spiritual pride so small that it gives us little hope of the girl herself. But have you thought how it can be made to influence your own patient? It is always the novice who exaggerates. The man who has risen in society is over-refined. The young scholar is pedantic in this new circle. Your patient is a novice. He is there daily meeting Christian life of a quality he never imagined before and seeing it all through an enchanted glass because he is in love. He is anxious. Indeed, the enemy commands him to imitate this quality. Can you get him to imitate this defect in his mistress and to exaggerate it until he what was venial? in her becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of vices. Spiritual pride? The conditions seem ideally favorable. The new circle in which he finds himself is one of which he is tempted to be proud for many reasons other than its Christianity. It is a better educated, more intelligent, more agreeable society than any he has yet encountered. He is also under some degree of illusion as to his own place in it. Under the influence of love, he may still think himself unworthy of the girl, but he is rapidly ceasing to think himself unworthy of the others. He has no notion how much in him is given because they are charitable and made the best of him because he is now one of the family. He does not dream how much of his conversation, how many of his opinions are recognized by them all as mere echoes of their own. Still less, does he suspect 
How much of the delight he takes in these people is due to the erotic enchantment with the girl. For him, spreads all over all her surroundings. He thinks that he likes their talk and way of life because of some congruity between their spiritual state and his. When in fact they are so far beyond him that if he were not in love, he would be merely puzzled and repelled by much which he now accepts. He is like a dog which should imagine it understood firearms because its hunting instinct and love for its master enable it to enjoy a day's shooting. Here is your chance while the enemy by means of sexual love and of some very agreeable people far advanced in his service is drawing the young barbarian up to levels he could never otherwise have reached. You must make him feel that he is finding his own level, that these people are his sort, and that coming among them, he has come home. When he turns from them to other society, he will find it dull, partly because almost any society within his reach is, in fact, much less entertaining but still more because he will miss the enchantment of the young woman. You must teach him to mistake this contrast between the circle that delights and the circle that bores him for the contrast between Christians and unbelievers. He must be made to feel he'd better not put it into words how different we Christians are. And by we Christians, he must really but unknowingly mean my set, and by my set it must mean not the people who in their charity and humility have accepted me, but the people with whom I associate by right. Success here depends on confusing him. If you try to make him explicitly, professedly proud of being a Christian, you will probably fail. The enemy's warnings are too well known. If, on the other hand, you let the idea of we Christians drop out altogether and merely make him complacent about his set, you will produce not true spiritual pride, but mere social vanity, which by comparison is a trumpery, puny little sin. What you want is to keep a sly self-congratulation mixing with all his thoughts and never allow him to raise the question, what precisely am I congratulating myself about? The idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in a secret, is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. Teach him, using the influence of this girl, when she is silliest, to adopt an air of amusement at the things the believers say. Some theories, which he may meet in modern Christian circles, may here prove helpful. Theories, I mean, that place the hope of society in some inner ring of clerks, some trained minority of theocrats. It is no affair of yours whether those theories are true or false. The great thing is to make Christianity a mystery religion in which he feels himself one of the initiates. Pray, do not fill your letters with rubbish about this European war. Its final issue is no doubt important, but 
That is a matter for the high command. I am not in the least interested in knowing how many people in England have been killed by bombs. In what state of mind they died, I can learn from the office at this end. That they were going to die sometime, I knew already. Please keep your mind on your work. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now, a word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and... You know, Christianity and the crisis... Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christian, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable possessions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. The humans live in time and experience reality successively. To experience much of it, therefore, they must experience many different things. In other words, they must experience change. And since they need change, the enemy, being a hedonist at heart, has made change pleasurable to them, just as he has made eating pleasurable. But since he does not wish them to make change any more than eating an end in itself, he has balanced the love of change in them by a love of permanence. He has contrived to gratify both tastes together in the very world he has made them by that union of change and permanence which we call rhythm. He gives them the seasons. Each season different, yet every year the same, so that spring is always felt as a novelty, yet always as the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them in his church a spiritual year. They change from a fast to a feast, but it is the same feast as before. Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, so we pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. This demand is entirely our workmanship. 
If we neglect our duty, men will not only be contented, but transported by the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops this January, sunrise this morning, plum pudding this Christmas. Children, until we have taught them better, we will be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games in which conquerors succeed hopscotch as regularly as autumn follows summer. Only by our incessant efforts is the demand for infinite or unrhythmical change kept up. This demand is valuable in various ways. In the first place, it diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. The pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns, and continued novelty costs money, so that the desire for it spells avarice or unhappiness or both. And again, the more rapacious this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of pleasure and pass on to those the enemy forbids. Thus, by inflaming the horror of the same old thing, we have recently made the arts, for example, less dangerous to us than perhaps they have ever been. Lowbrow and highbrow artists alike being now daily drawn into fresh and still fresh excesses of lasciviousness, unreason, cruelty, and pride. Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable if we are to produce fashions or vogues. The use of fashions in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running about with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly gunwale under. Thus, we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm, a century later when we are really making them all Byronic and drunk with emotion. The fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of the mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against puritanism, and whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants, we make liberalism the prime bogey. But the greatest triumph of all is to elevate this horror of the same old thing into a philosophy so that nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption in the will. It is here that the general evolutionary or historical character of modern European thought, partly our work, comes in so useful. The enemy loves platitudes. Of the proposed course of action, he wants men, so far as I can see, to ask very simple questions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Now, if we can keep men asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? 
Here's the way that the history is going. They will neglect the relevant questions. And the questions they do ask are, of course, unanswerable. For they do not know the future. And what the future will be depends very largely on just those choices which they now invoke the future to help them make as a result. While their minds are buzzing in this vacuum, we have the better chance to slip in and bend them to the action we have decided on. And great work has already been done. Once they knew that some changes were for the better and others for the worse, and others again indifferent, we have largely removed this knowledge. For the descriptive adjective unchanged, we have substituted the emotional adjective stagnant. We have trained them to think of the future as a promised land which favored heroes attain, not as something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is, your affectionate uncle. <sighs> Screw tape. More ads. Mm. 26. My dear Wormwood, yes, courtship is the time for sowing those seeds which will grow up. Ten years later into domestic hatred, the enchantment of unsatisfied desire produces results which the humans can be made to mistake for the results of charity. Avail yourself of the ambiguity in the word love. Let them think they have solved by love problems they have in fact only waived or postponed under the influence of the enchantment. While it lasts, you have your chance to foment the problems in secret and render them chronic. The grand problem is that of unselfishness. Note, once again, the admirable work of our philological arm in substituting the negative unselfishness for the enemy's positive charity. Thanks to this, you can, from the outset, teach a man to surrender benefits, not that others may be happy in having them, but that he may be unselfish in foregoing them. That is a great point gained. Another great help where the parties concerned are male and female is the divergence of view about unselfishness, which we have built up between the sexes. A woman means by unselfishness chiefly taking trouble for others. A man means not giving trouble to others. As a result, a woman who is quite far gone in the enemy's service will make a nuisance of herself on a larger scale than any man except those whom our father has dominated completely. And conversely, a man will live long in the enemy's camp before he undertakes as much spontaneous work to please others as a quite ordinary woman may do every day. Thus, while the woman thinks of doing good offices and the man of respecting other people's rights, each sex, without any obvious unreason, can and does regard the other as radically selfish. On top 
of these confusions, you can now introduce a few more. The erotic enchantment produces a mutual complacence in which each is really pleased to give in to the wishes of the other. They also know that the enemy demands of them a degree of charity which, if attained, would result in similar actions. You must make them establish as a law for their whole married life that degree of mutual self-sacrifice which is at present sprouting naturally out of the enchantment, but which, when the enchantment dies away, they will not have charity enough to enable them to perform. They will not see the trap, since they are under the double blindness of mistaking sexual excitement for charity and of thinking that the excitement will last. When once a sort of a official, legal, or nominal unselfishness has been established as a rule, a rule for the keeping of which their emotional resources have died away, and their spiritual resources have not yet grown, the most delightful results follow. In discussing any joint action, it becomes obligatory that A should argue in favor of B's supposed wishes and against his own, while B does the opposite. It is often impossible to find out either party's real wishes. With luck, they end by doing something that neither wants, while each feels a glow of self-righteousness and harbors a secret claim to preferential treatment for the unselfishness shown, and a secret grudge against the other for the ease with which the sacrifice has been accepted. Later on, you can venture on what may be called the generous conflict illusion. This game is best played with more than two players in a family with grown-up children, for example. Something quite trivial, like having tea in the garden, is proposed. One member takes care to make it quite clear, though not in so many words, that he would uh, rather not, but is, of course, prepared to do so out of unselfishness. The others instantly withdraw their proposal, ostensibly through their unselfishness, but really because they don't want to be used as a sort of lay figure on which the first speaker practices petty altruisms. But he is not going to be done out in his debauch of unselfishness either. He insists on doing what others want, they insist on doing what he wants. Passions are roused. Soon someone is saying, very well, then I won't have any tea at all. And a real quarrel ensues with bitter resentment on both sides. You see how it is done? If each side has been frankly contending for its own real wish, they would have all kept within the bounds of reason and courtesy. But just because the contention is reversed, and each side is fighting the other side's battle. All the bitterness which really flows from thwarted self-righteousness and obstinacy and the accumulated grudges of the last ten years is concealed from them by the nominal or official unselfishness of what they are doing, or, at least, held to be excused by it. Each side is, indeed, quite alive to the cheap quality of the adversary's unselfishness and of the false position into which he is trying to force them, but each manages to feel blameless and ill-used itself. 
with no more dishonesty than comes natural to a human. A sensible human once said, if people knew how much ill-feeling and selfishness occasions, it would not be so often recommended from the pulpit. And again, she's the sort of the woman who lives for others. You can always tell the others by their haunted expression. All this can be begun even in the period of courtship. A little real selfishness on your patient's part is often of less value in the long run for securing his soul than the first beginnings of that elaborate and self-consciousness unselfishness which may one day blossom into the sort of thing I have described. Some degree of mutual falseness, some surprise that the girl does not always notice just how unselfish he is being can be smuggled in already. Cherish these things and above all, don't let the young fools notice them. If they notice them, they will be on the road to discovering that love is not enough, that charity is needed and not yet achieved, and that no external law can supply its place. I wish Slump Trippet could do something about undermining that young woman's sense of the ridiculous. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now buy some products. Twenty-seven. My dear Wormwood, you seem to be doing very little good at present. The use of his love to distract his mind from the enemy is, of course, obvious. But you reveal what poor use you are making of it when you say that the whole question of distraction and the wandering mind has now become one of the chief subjects of his prayers. That means you have largely failed. When... This or any other distraction crosses his mind, you ought to encourage him to thrust it away by sheer will power and to try to continue the normal prayer as if nothing had happened. Once he accepts the distraction as his present problem and lays that before the enemy and makes it the main theme of his prayers and his endeavors, then so far from doing good, you have done harm. Anything even a sin, which has the total effect of moving him close up to the enemy, makes against us in the long run. A promising line is the following. Now, that he is in love, a new idea of earthly happiness has arisen in his mind, and hence a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers about this war and other such matters. Now is the time for raising his intellectual difficulties about prayer of that sort. False spirituality is always to be encouraged on the seemingly pious ground that praise and communion with God is the true prayer. Humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to the enemy who, in his usual flat, commonplace, uninteresting way, has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of their sick. You will, of course, conceal from him the fact that the prayer for daily bread, interpreted in a spiritual sense, is really just as crudely petitionary as it is in any other sense. 
but since your patient has contracted the terrible habit of obedience, he will probably continue such crude prayers, whatever you do. But you can worry him with the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective results. Don't forget to use the heads-I-win-tails-you-lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore, it would have happened anyway. And thus, a granted prayer becomes just as good as proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. You, being a spirit, will find it difficult to understand how he gets into this confusion, but you must remember that he takes time for an ultimate reality. He supposes that the enemy, like himself, sees some things as present, remembers others as past, and anticipates others as future, even if he believes that the enemy does not see things that way, yet in his heart of hearts, he regards this as a peculiarity of the enemy's mode of perception. He doesn't really think, though he would say he did, that things as the enemy sees them are things as they are. If you try to explain to him that men's prayers today are one of the innumerable coordinates with which the enemy harmonizes the weather of tomorrow, he would reply that then the enemy always knew men were going to make those prayers, and if so, they did not pray freely but were predestined to do so. And he would add that the weather on a given day can be traced back through its causes to the original creation of matter itself, so that the whole thing, both on the human and on the material side, is given from the word go. What he ought to say, of course, is obvious to us, that the problem of adapting the peculiar weather to the particular prayers is merely the appearance at two points in his temporal mode of perception of the total problem of adapting the whole spiritual universe to the whole corporeal universe. That creation in its entirety operates at every point of space and time, or rather, that their kind of consciousness forces them to encounter the whole self-consistent creative act as a series of successive events. Why? That creative act leaves room for their free will is the problem of problems. The secret behind the enemy's nonsense about love. How it does so is no problem at all. For the enemy does not foresee the humans making their free contributions in a future, but sees them doing so in his unbounded now. And obviously to watch a man doing something is not to make him do it. It may be replied that some meddlesome human writers, notably Boethius, have let this secret out, but in the intellectual climate which we have at last succeeded in producing throughout Western Europe, you needn't bother about that. Only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are of all men the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. The historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented 
With any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks who influenced the ancient writer and how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books. In what phase in the writer's development or in the general history of thought it illustrates and how it affected later writers and how often it has been misunderstood, especially by the learned man's own colleagues. And what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last ten years. And what is the present state of the question? To regard the ancient writer as a possible source of knowledge? To anticipate that what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or your behavior, this would be rejected as unutterably simple-minded. And since we cannot deceive the whole human race all of the time, it is the most important thus to cut every generation off from all the others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. But thanks to our father and the historical point of view, great scholars are now as little nourished by the past as the most ignorant mechanic who holds that history is bunk. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Hear these ads. Twenty-eight. My dear Wormwood, when I told you not to fill your letters with rubbish about the war, I meant, of course, that I did not want to have your rather infantile rhapsodies about the death of men and the destruction of cities. In so far as the war really concerns the spiritual state of the patient, I naturally want full reports. And on this aspect you seem singularly obtuse. Thus, you tell me with glee that there is reason to expect heavy air raids on the town where the creature lives. This is a crying example of something I have complained about already. Your readiness to forget the main point of your immediate enjoyment of human suffering. Do you not know that bombs kill men? Or do you not realize that the patient's death at this moment is precisely what we want to avoid? He has escaped the worldly friends with whom you tried to entangle him. He has fallen in love with a very Christian woman and is temporarily immune from your attacks on his chastity and the various methods of corrupting his spiritual life, which we have been trying, are so far unsuccessful at the present moment. As the full impact of the war draws nearer and his worldly hopes take a proportionately lower place in his mind, full of his defense work, full of the girl forced to attend to his neighbors more than he has ever done before and liking it more than he expected, taken out of himself, as the humans say, and daily increasing in conscious dependence on the enemy, he will almost certainly be lost to us if he is killed tonight. This is so obvious that I am ashamed to write it. I sometimes wonder if you young fiends are not kept out on temptation duty too long at a time, if you are not in some danger of becoming infected 
by the sentiments and values of the humans among whom you work. They, of course, do tend to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good, but that is because we have taught them to do so. Do not let us be infected by our own propaganda. I know it seems strange that your chief aim at the moment should be the very same thing for which the patient's lover and his mother are praying, namely his bodily safety, but so it is. You should be guarding him like the apple of your eye. If he dies now, you lose him. If he survives the war, there is always hope. The enemy has guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for those creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair hardly felt as pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptation with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All of this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, your position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. The truth is that the enemy, having oddly destined these mere animals to life in his own eternal world, has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up our firm attachment to the earth. While they are young, we find them always shooting off at a tangent. Even if we contrive to keep them ignorant of explicit religion, the uncalculable winds of fantasy and music and poetry, the mere face of a girl, the song of a bird, or the sight of a horizon are always blowing our whole structure away. They will not apply themselves steadily to worldly advancement, prudent connections, and the policy of safety first. So inveterate is their appetite for heaven. That's our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics or eugenics or science or psychology or whatnot. Real worldliness is a work of time assisted, of course, by pride. For we teach them to describe 
The creeping death is a good sense of maturity or experience. Experience, in the peculiar sense we teach them to give it, is, by the by, a most useful word. A great human philosopher nearly let our secret out when he said that where virtue is concerned, experience is the mother of illusion. But thanks to a change in fashion, and also, of course, to the historical point of view, we have largely rendered this book innocuous. How valuable time is to us may be gauged by the fact that the enemy allows us so little of it. The majority of the human race dies in infancy. Of the survivors, a good many die in youth. It is obvious that to him, human birth is important chiefly as the qualification for human death, and death solely as the gate to that other kind of life. We are allowed to work only on a selected minority of the race, for what humans call a normal life is the exception. Apparently, he wants some, but only a very few, of the human animals with which he is peopling heaven to have had the experience of resisting us through an earthly life of 60 or 70 years. Well, there is our opportunity. The smaller it is, the better we must use it. Whatever you do, keep your patient as safe as you possibly can. Your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. Now a word from our sponsors. Again, fuckers. 29. My dear Wormwood, now that it is certain the German humans will bombard your patient's town and that his duties will keep him in the thick of danger, we must consider our policy. Are we to aim at cowardice or at courage, with consequent pride or at hatred of the Germans? Well, I am afraid it is no good trying to make him brave. Our research department has not yet discovered those successes hourly expected or how to produce any virtue, any virtue. This is a serious handicap. To be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. What would Attila have been without his courage or Shylock without self-denial as regards the flesh? But as we cannot supply these qualities ourselves, we can only use them to supplied by the enemy. And this means leaving him a kind of foothold in those men whom otherwise we have made most securely our own. A very unsatisfactory arrangement, but I trust we shall one day learn to do better. Hatred, we can manage. The tension of human nerves during noise, danger, and fatigue makes them prone to any violent emotion, and it is only a question of guiding this susceptibility into the right channels. If conscience resists, muddle him. Let him say that he feels hatred not on his own behalf, but on that of women and children, and that a Christian is told to forgive his own, not other people's enemies. In other words, let him consider himself sufficiently identified with the women and children to feel hatred on their behalf, but not 
sufficiently identified to regard their enemies as his own and therefore proper objects for forgiveness. But hatred is best combined with fear. Cowardice alone of all the vices is purely painful, horrible to anticipate, horrible to feel, horrible to remember. Hatred has its pleasures. It is, therefore, often the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. The more he fears, the more he will hate. And hatred is also a great anodyne for shame. To make a deep wound in his charity, you should therefore first defeat his courage. Now, this is a ticklish business. We have made men proud of most vices, but not of cowardice. Whenever we have almost succeeded in doing so, the enemy permits a war or an earthquake or some other calamity. And at once courage becomes so obviously lovely and important, even in human eyes, that all our work is undone. And there is still at least one vice of which they feel genuine shame. The danger of inducing cowardice in our patients, therefore, is lest we produce real self-knowledge and self-loathing with consequent repentance and humility. And in fact, in the last war, thousands of humans, by discovering their own cowardice, discovered the whole moral world for the first time. In peace, we can make many of them ignore good and evil entirely in danger. The issue is forced upon them in a guise to which even we cannot blind them. There is here a cruel dilemma before us. If we promoted justice and charity among men, we should be playing directly into the enemy's hands. But if we guide them to the opposite behavior, this sooner or later, for he permits it to produce a war or revolution, and the undisguisable issue of cowardice or courage awakes thousands of men from moral stupor, this indeed is probably one of the enemy's motives for creating a dangerous world, a world in which moral issues really come to the point. He sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality, a chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. It is therefore possible to lose as much as we gain by making a man a coward. He may learn too much about himself. There is, of course, always the chance not of chloroforming the shame, but of aggravating it and producing despair. This would be a great triumph. It would show that he had believed in and accepted the enemy's forgiveness of his other sins only because he himself did not fully feel their sinfulness. That, in respect of the one vice which he really understands in its full depth of dishonor, he cannot seek nor credit the mercy. But I fear you have already let him get too far in the enemy's school, and he knows that despair is a greater sin 
than any of the sins which provoke it. As to the actual technique of temptations to cowardice, not much need be said. The main point is that precautions have a tendency to increase fear. The precautions publicly enjoined on your patient, however, soon become a matter of routine and this effect disappears. What you must do is to keep running in his mind side by side with the conscious attention of doing his duty. The vague idea of all sorts of things he can do or not do inside the framework of the duty, which seems to make him a little safer. Get his mind off the simple rule, I've got to stay here and do so-and-so, into a series of imaginary lifelines. If A happened, though I very much hope it won't, I could do B, and if the worst came to the worst, I could always do C. Superstitions, if not recognized as such, can be awakened. The point is to keep him feeling that he has something other than the enemy and courage the enemy supplies to fall back on so that what was intended to be a total commitment to duty becomes honeycombed all through with little unconscious reservations by building up a series of imaginary expedients to prevent the worst coming to the worst you may produce at that level of his will which he is not aware of a determination that the worst shall not come to the worst and then at the moment of real terror rush it out into his nerves and muscles and you may get the fatal act done before he knows what you're about remember the act of cowardice is all that matters the emotion of fear is in itself no sin and though we enjoy it does us no good your affectionate uncle screw tape more fucking advertisers thirty my dear Wormwood, I sometimes wonder whether you think you have been sent into the world for your own amusement. I gather, not from your miserably inadequate report, but from that of the infernal police, that the patient's behavior during the first raid has been the worst possible. He has been very frightened and thinks himself a great coward and therefore feels no pride. But... He has done everything his duty demanded, and perhaps a bit more. Against this disaster, all you can produce on the credit side is a burst of ill temper with a dog that tripped him up, some excessive cigarette smoking, and the forgetting of a prayer. What is the use of whining to me about your difficulties? If you are proceeding on the enemy's idea of justice, and suggesting that your opportunities and intentions should be taken into account, then I am not sure that a charge of heresy does not lie against you. At any rate, you will soon find that the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. The only constructive passage in your letter 
is where you say that you still expect good results from the patient's fatigue. That is well enough, but it won't fall into your hands. Fatigue can produce extreme gentleness and quiet of mind and even something like vision. You have often seen men led by it into anger, malice, and impatience. That is because those men have had efficient tempters. The paradoxical thing is that moderate fatigue is a better soil for peevishness than absolute exhaustion. This depends partly on physical causes, but partly on something else. It is not fatigue simply as such that produces the anger, but unexpected demands on a man already tired. Whatever men expect, they soon come to think they have a right to. The sense of disappointment can, with very little skill on our part, be turned into a sense of injury. It is after men have given into the irremediable, after they have despaired of relief and ceased to think even a half hour ahead that the dangers of humbled and gentle weariness begin. To produce the best results from your patient's fatigue, therefore, you must feed him with false hope. Put into his mind plausible reasons for believing that the air raid will not be repeated. Keep him confronting himself with the thought of how much he will enjoy his bed next night. Exaggerate the weariness by making him think it will soon be over. For men usually feel that a strain could have been endured no longer at the very moment when it is ending, or when they think it is ending. In this, as in the problem of cowardice, the thing to avoid is the total commitment. Whatever he says, let his inner resolution be not to bear whatever comes to him, but to bear it for a reasonable period, and let the reasonable period be shorter than the trial is likely to last. It need not be much shorter. In attacks on patience, chastity, and fortitude, the fun is to make the man yield, just when, had he but known it, relief was almost in sight. I do not know whether he is likely to meet the girl under conditions of strain or not. If he does make full use of the fact that up to a certain point, fatigue makes women talk more and men talk less, much secret resentment, even between lovers, can be raised from this. Probably the scenes he is now witnessing will not provide material for an intellectual attack on his faith. Your previous failures have put that out of your power. But there is a sort of attack on the emotions which can still be tried. It turns on making him feel, when first he sees human remains plastered on a wall, that this is what the world really is like and that all his religion has been a fantasy. You will notice that we have got them completely fogged about the meaning of the word real. They tell each other of some great spiritual experience. All that really happened was that you heard some music in a lighted building. Here, real means the bare physical facts separated from the other elements in the experience they actually had. On the other hand, 
They also say, It's all very well discussing that high dive as you sit here in an armchair, but wait till you get up there and see what it's really like. The here real is being used in the opposite sense to mean not the physical facts, which they know already while discussing the matter in armchairs, but the emotional effect those facts will have on a human consciousness. Either application of the word could be defended, but our business is to keep the two going at once so that the emotional value of the word real can be placed now on one side of the account, now on the other, as it happens to suit us. The general rule, which we have now pretty well established among them, is that in all experiences which can make them happier or better, only the physical facts are real, while the spiritual elements are subjective. In all experiences which can discourage or corrupt them, the spiritual elements are the main reality, and to ignore them is to be an escapist. Thus, in birth, the blood and pain are real, the rejoicing a mere subjective point of view. In death, the terror and ugliness reveal what death really means. The hatefulness of a hated person is real, in hatred you see men as they are, you are disillusioned, but the loveliness of a loved person is merely a subjective haze, concealing a real core of sexual appetite or economic association. Wars and poverty are really horrible. Peace and plenty are mere physical facts about which men happen to have certain sentiments. The creatures are always accusing one another of wanting to eat the cake and have it. But thanks to our labors, they are, more often, in the predicament of paying for the cake and not eating it. Your patient, properly handled, will have no difficulty in regarding his emotion at the sight of human entrails as a revelation of reality and his emotion at the sight of happy children or fair weather as mere sentiment. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Thank you for supporting this show. Thirty-one. My dear, my very dear Wormwood, my poppet, my pig's knee. How mistakenly now that all is lost, you come whimpering to ask me whether the terms of affection in which I address you meant nothing from the beginning. Far from it, rest assured, my love for you and your love for me are as like as two peas. I have always desired you, as you, pitiful fool, desired me. The difference is that I am the stronger. I think they will give you to me now, or a bit of you. Love you? Why, yes. As dainty a morsel as ever I grew fat on. You have let a soul slip through your fingers. The howl of sharpened famine for that loss re-echoes at this moment through all the levels of the kingdom of noise, down to the very throne itself. It makes me mad to think about it. 
How well I know what happened at the instant when they snatched him from you. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not? As he saw you for the first time and recognized the part you had in him and knew that you had it no longer. Just think and let it be the beginning of your agony. What he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen from an old sore, as if he were emerging from a hideous shell-like tetter, as if he shuffled off for good and all a defiled, wet, clinging garment. By hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days taking off dirtied and uncomfortable clothes and splashing in hot water and giving little grunts of pleasure, stretching their eased limbs. What then of this final stripping, this complete cleansing? The more one thinks about it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily. No gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating theater, no false hopes of life, sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment, it seemed to be all our world. The scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosive on the lips and in the lungs, the feet of burning with weariness, the heart cold with horror. The brain reeling, the lungs aching. Next moment all this was gone. Gone like a bad dream. Never again to be of any account. Defeated, outmaneuvered fool. Did you mark how naturally, as if he'd been born for it, the earth-born vermin entered the new life? How all his doubts became, in the twinkling of an eye, ridiculous? I know what the creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course, it always was like this. All horrors have followed the same course, getting worse and worse, and forcing you into a kind of bottleneck, till at the very moment when you thought you must be crushed, behold, you were out of the narrows, and all was suddenly well. The extraction hurt more and more, and then the tooth was out, the dream became a nightmare, and then you woke. You die and die, and then you are beyond death. How could I ever have doubted it? As he saw you, he also saw them. I know how it was. You reeled back dizzy and blinded, more hurt by them than he had ever been by bombs. The degradation of it, that this thing of earth and slime could stand upright and converse with spirits before whom you, a spirit, could only cower. Perhaps you had hoped that the awe and strangeness of it would dash his joy, but that is the cursed thing. The gods are strange to mortalize, and yet they are not strange. He had no faintest conception till that very hour how they would look and even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew he had always known them, and realized what part each one of them had played at many an hour in his life when he had supposed himself alone. So that now he could say to them, one by one, 
Who are you? But so it was you all the time. All that they were and said at this meeting woke memories. The dim consciousness of friends about him which had haunted his solitudes from infancy was now at last explained. That central music in every pure experience which had always just evaded memory was now at last recovered. Recognition made him free of their company almost before the limbs of his corpse became quiet. Only you were left outside. He saw not only them, he saw him. This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What his blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him, is clarity itself, and wears the form of a man. You would like, if you could, to interpret the patient's prostration in the presence, his self-abhorrence and utter knowledge of his sins. Yes, Wormwood, a clearer knowledge even than yours, on the analogy of your own choking and paralyzing sensations when you encounter the deadly air that breathes from the heart of heaven. But it's all nonsense. Pains he may still have to encounter, but they embrace those pains. They would not barter them for any earthly pleasure. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect which you could once have tempted him. Even the delights of virtue itself now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved whom he has loved all his life and whom he had believed to be dead is alive and even now at his door he is caught up into that world where pain and pleasure take on transfinite values and all our arithmetic is dismayed once more the inexplicable meets us next to the curse of useless tempters like yourself. The greatest curse upon us is the failure of our intelligence department. If only we could find out what he is really up to. Alas, alas, that knowledge in itself, so hateful and mawkish a thing, should yet be necessary for power. Sometimes I am almost in despair. All that sustains me is the conviction that our realism, our rejection, in the face of all temptations, of all silly nonsense and claptrap, must win in the end. Meanwhile, I have you to settle with. Most truly do I sign myself your increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle screw tape hermetic science enterprises is a publishing company based in scotland uk that specializes in western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos with various imprints under its belt its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature alchemical works golden dawn tradition books and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. 
Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before including a six hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May I believe so check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk